right, so make sure you guys have your study sheets ready to go. We'll see how far we can get. Trying to gauge the time. It's kind of weird. I like being back in our room. It actually is kind of nice. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Although with humidity comes people, so Bobby doesn't like people. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay. Okay, so. Yeah, we've already done that. Okay, so we are in our How to Study the Bible series. Now, by the way, just as a side note, uh, hopefully you guys have been keeping track of your notes for How to Study the Bible because this does count for the adult version of How to Study the Bible as a prerequisite for JBI. So if you have any desire to get into JBI at some point in the future, hold on to your notes because you will need them in order to get into JBI. So if at any point in time you're missing your notes or up to this point you're just straight up unfaithful, just let me know and I can get you some copies of the notes. All right, so we're talking about the uh, eighth rule tonight. We're going to be talking about the apparent contradiction factor. I really like this one. This is one I've, I feel like is one that you guys can use almost right away when it comes to discussions with people. Because oftentimes when you get in discussions about the Bible, about your faith, um, there are people that already have some preconceived arguments or things to say against you about it. And one of the ones that you've heard, I'm sure, over the years, if you've had conversations with people about it, has been, well, there's just contradictions in the Bible. Well, didn't men write the Bible? And so how can I trust it? And so that's where this one comes into play. So there's a reason why we've waited seven rules before getting to this one, because there's a lot that goes into it for, from the past weeks that you could almost answer some of these things by using those other rules this week. So we're going to talk about that. All right. So on your guys' study sheet, we're going to talk about the apparent contradiction factor. So there are no contradictions in the Bible. If you find an apparent contradiction... Always give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. So, and this is not just a blind faith, like, I mean, yeah, you should just blindly just trust the Bible. I mean, that's a given. But at the same time, God doesn't require that of you. He will give reasons why you should believe the Bible. So if there's something that comes up in the scriptures, which we're going we're to go through a few examples that show you like in your in your face, you're like, man, I don't know what to do with that because it says here this and then over here in this passage it says this and they seem to oppose one another. What am I supposed to do with that? There's a reason why God is doing some of those things and, uh, and we'll talk more about that. But there are some basics. These three verses, I feel like, are, are the three verses that really paint the picture for this rule very well. So Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. I told you guys this early on. Um, I stand firm on this. God cannot lie, so His book cannot lie. And if God's book cannot lie, if there is one in it, then God is a liar and I'm out. It really is that simple, and I do believe that. I'm not just saying it because it's my job. I believe that because that, that, that is what I believe. That's what the Bible says. God is not a liar, so His Word cannot be a liar either. And so it's just a matter of trying to figure out, then why does it seem like there's this apparent contradiction? Hebrews 11, 1 and verse 6. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. See, there's a lot of people that will come to the topic of God, or the topic of, of the Bible, and they're not coming to God believing that He is. And because they're coming to God and to topics of the Bible and Christianity not believing that God is, they're already coming up with arguments of why not to believe. When I think part of our job is, 
Okay, you're trying to figure out why not to believe, but I'm telling you why you should consider believing and just giving them a different perspective. So I like those verses. And then John 16, 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. We're going to talk about that verse in future weeks too with another rule of Bible study. But there are some things in the Bible that look like a contradiction that you just don't really understand. And so you have a choice. Either you can trust that God's not a liar and keep growing in your walk and maybe learn about that at a later point in time, or you can walk away because you have an unresolved conflict. I prefer to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt because God has proven himself thus far. So let's talk about some important concepts. All right, so some important concepts. So believing that there are no contradictions can only be done through faith. So that's your first blank, faith. Believing there are no contradictions can only be done through faith that every word in the Bible is divinely inspired and kept free from error by God. And that can be a huge leap for some people. For me, it's not that far of a leap because God's not a liar. And I remember talking to uh, the, the high school students in Northwest while Bobby was out, and I just was talking to them about the fact that, you know, if God can create something out of nothing, and as the Bible says that he just breathes and stars come out, I believe that he's certainly more powerful or powerful enough to create his word and to keep it intact. Because I've written a letter before or I've copied things down. Like say I've got a teacher who's giving a lecture and they have a PowerPoint and I need to take notes. I can copy down word for word what that teacher puts up on the slide on a piece of paper. It's not that difficult. I can do that. But I can't make stars. Like I just, I can't. I mean... I can't say that I've tried, but I just, I mean, I, I can't, I just can't make stars. It's just not, I don't have the capacity to do that. I don't have the power to do that. So if God can make stars and he has that power level, then why would I not believe that God could create his word and then keep it intact free from error? So for me, it's very easy to say, yeah, God is true. And I believe that he can absolutely do that. So Psalm 12, 6 and 7 says that God uh, preserves his words throughout all generations. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6 says that the word of the Lord is pure. Every word of the Lord is pure. And he warns not to add to his words. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says uh, that the word is given by inspiration of God. And then Titus 1, 2, God cannot lie. And John 14, 6 talks about how Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So if those things are true, then I can believe that his book is a book that can be absolutely pure. Those that are willing to trust God, trust his words, and study his words will find that all apparent contradictions are able to be resolved. If you're willing to trust that God knows what he's talking about, that there is a book that is free from error, then all apparent contradictions can be resolved. Let me show you a few verses on this one. Matthew 24:35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Every single word of God will not pass away. I like this verse too. John 10:35. If he called them gods unto whom the word, the word of God came, talking about those Pharisees actually at that time, and he says, and the scripture cannot be broken. That phrase at the end of that verse uh, means a lot to me. The scripture cannot be broken. So that, another word to say that is that you can't contradict the Bible. It can't be broken. It's consistent from beginning to end. And as you compare Scripture to Scripture, it cannot be broken. God will not allow His Word to be broken. And then 1 Peter 1.23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Word of God is where the incorruptible seed comes from. So we must have a book that is not corrupted. I love how it says that right there in that verse. 
So I believe that. I believe that. So I know that if I'm going to come to a passage of the Bible that seems like there's a contradiction, there's something else going on. And frankly, I believe that it's God wanting to teach me something deeper. I think that God sometimes puts apparent contradictions in the Bible as a test for you on whether or not you're actually going to believe him or not. And here's why. The next point. Apparent contradictions give skeptics... Apparent contradictions give skeptics a reason to believe their own lies and at the same time give faithful believers further confidence to remain faithful to the Lord and His words. That's a, that's a pretty huge statement. That apparent contradictions give reasons for people that don't want to believe, more reasons not to believe. But for someone that's willing to believe God, those same passages give those people reasons to continue believing. God does this all the time. Let's take a look at Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 10 through 16. Take a look at this. And Bobby, why don't you look up Ezekiel 14, 1 through 4. Matthew 13. Take a look at this. All right, Matthew 13. Verse 10. So Jesus is now speaking to... The Jews in parables. He's not really done that up to this point. But the <laughs> leaders of the nation and of the religious community have completely rejected the Messiah. So now Jesus is still doing a public ministry, but he's now communicating publicly through parables. So it seems like he's talking in a more mysterious form. And so they catch on to this and they even ask why. So verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Because he's never done it at this point so far. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them is it not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, or Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. And here's the reason why they couldn't understand. Verse 15, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So what he's saying here is that these people, because of their own pride, they have willingly shut their ears and shut their eyes, or else they would be able to see and understand what's going on. But because you're willing to believe me, my disciples, you'll be able to understand all these things. You'll be able to understand everything there is to know about these parables that I'm teaching. And God does this kind of stuff all the time. All right, Bobby, go ahead and read that Ezekiel. I love this one. Listen, listen carefully to this passage. It's four verses, Ezekiel 14, 1 through 4. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart, and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak unto them, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. Okay, did you guys get that? Did you hear that one at all? That one's, that one's a big one. So here's what's going on. The people of Israel had idols in their heart. They don't even really want to obey God. 
they have something set up in their heart where they're like, okay, I want a reason not to believe, but I want to look good, so I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to sit in the Sunday school, and I'm going to talk to the pastors, and I'm going to talk to everybody they need to. I'm going to play church. I'm basically going to play church. But in my heart, I know that I really don't want to walk with God, and I'm just stubborn. I didn't want to do whatever I want to do. So God, who sees everyone's heart, looks at all of them and says, okay, I already know out of all the people that are here that there are idols that are set up in your heart and you're looking for a reason not to believe. So if you already have that in your heart and mind that you are against me, you don't want to follow me, you don't want to listen to me, and yet you come to the prophet to hear more from God, then God is going to answer you according to the idols in your heart. Which means that that reason you don't want to believe will even be brought to the surface and it's going to give you even a greater excuse to not believe God. So if you're looking for reasons not to believe, it's not hard to find them. But if you're looking for reasons to believe, it's not hard to find those either. And it's all a matter of your heart. If you want to worship your own idols, your own flesh, your own lust, your own desires, then God will give you answers for you to go that direction. It's completely up to you. Or if you really want to get right with God and you really want to do what's right, then God will show you the direction you need to go in order to go that way. It's all a matter of your heart. So there are people that will go into the scriptures looking for reasons not to believe. And God will say, fine, here's 55. And you can even go to passages and you can say, see, I don't want to believe the Bible because of that over there. Let me give you a great example. Well, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I mean, he, he murders women and children. You heard that one? I've heard that one. Do you know that there's a reason for that? And there's an answer to that if you're willing to find it? But most people don't want to do that. Well, you guys are just homophobes because in Leviticus, it just talks about homosexuality is a sin. It shouldn't be. Having, oh, does that mean that we have to wear certain, you know, you can't wear like cotton because it's a blended, uh, blended material. Because in Levitical law, it says that you can't take two, two pieces of cloth and blend them together and then wear that garment. Are you going to obey that too? If you're going to obey you, that you're against homosexuality, you're just going to go and do that too? People do this like crazy. Like crazy. So this is something that God does. He gives skeptics reasons to continue in their unbelief. And they're going to fall uh, just because they want to. Just because they want to. Alright, so next point. When a person says they cannot believe the Bible because of contradictions, they most likely will not be able to prove it. So, ask them. But, just in case they are able, be ready to give an answer. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 talks about. To be ready to give an answer. Because most people, most people do not, uh, are not in a position where they are able to give you a contradiction. So as you're having conversations, like, oh yeah, well the Bible's full of contradictions. And say, well, okay, well then show me one. Most of the time, like maybe 90% of the time, they're like, well, I mean, it's all over. Okay, well, show me one. I would even challenge them, well, then go find one. If you're not ready, go find one, and let's continue this conversation. And then just be ready for it. Just be ready for it. And then it's okay, because if they were to bring something like that up, here's what I would do. If you can't answer on the spot, just say, you know what? That's very interesting. Let me go and study that out. I'll figure it out, and then I'll come back, and we can continue the conversation again. Be a great way to keep the conversation going and follow Brian Clark's method of evangelism, isn't it? Okay. All right, so let me show you a couple. Let's dive into some of this stuff. So let's go to, um, uh, let's go to Matthew, Matthew 17, 1. 
Everybody go to Matthew 17, 1. Um, let me get another person. Go to Mark 9, 2. Gavin, you got that one. And then Carson, go to Luke 9, 28. So everyone go to Matthew 17 and verse 1. It should just be a few pages you write from where you were. All right, Matthew 17, 1, Mark 9, 2, versus Luke 9, 28. Now, this one is fairly simple. Um, there are ones that are very, very simple, and there are some that are very complicated. So we're going to do a simple one, we'll do a complicated one, and then we might do a few more, and then I might have you guys try to do one on your own, depending on the time. Okay, so Matthew 17, 1. Somebody read that. Let's go with this side of the room. Emily, go ahead. And after six days, Jesus taken Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into Okay, so how many days? Well, what, what does it say actually, though? Literally. After six, okay? All right, so we got that one. All right, now listen to Mark 9 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transferred here before them. Okay, so how many days? After six. After six, okay. And then Luke 9 28. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. Okay. So how many days? Eight. 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 Wait a minute. <laughs> so this is the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew says, after six days. Mark says, after six days. And Luke 9.28 says, about eight days later. Contradiction? It's an apparent contradiction. Right. Right. So I think that's important. So it's after six days. And then what does Luke 9 say? Uh, about an eight days after these sayings. Okay. About eight days. So what is it? What's, what's after six and about eight? Seven. 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 And it makes perfect sense, especially when you study this out. So... These, so what happened is that it was the seventh day, so after six and about eight, it's seven, so Jesus took them up on the mountain on the seventh day. Now, this is actually really cool, because then you're like, well then, why is it the seventh day? Well, it's really interesting, because when you study out human history, you find out there's about 6,000 years of human history, and then the 7,000th year of human history, which lines up with the seventh day of creation, the day of rest, is when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up the millennial reign for a thousand years on the earth where he rules and reigns on the earth. It's kind of cool. So, you have that pastor, it's like, well, it says Matthew, in Mark it says this, but in Luke it says this, it's an apparent contradiction. Oh, see, that one's an easy one, because you just look at the wording. After six, about eight, this is the seventh day, and it makes perfect sense, because on the seventh day, Jesus took three of his disciples up, he took his disciples up, <coughs> he took <coughs> his disciples up, and then after he took his disciples up, um, you know, yeah, he took him up. He took him up on a high mountain. He was transfigured or glorified. He was in his glorified state, and he was talking with Moses and Elijah. I mean, that's all tribulation. After everything's over, you've got the him coming back, the second coming, him ruling and reigning. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah. Like, why? Why is it seven? Why is it seven days? Yeah. Like, like, why do we know for sure it's seven and not eight? For what? For the Mount of Transfiguration? Or for... 
So like after six days or... Okay, so they both have to be true. So it's after six and about eight. And since they're all, the, all three of the same account, it can't be six and it can't be eight. And the only thing in between them that's after six and before eight is seven. Okay. So it must be seven. Because seven is after six, which makes Matthew and Mark totally correct. And it's about eight days, so it's not quite the eighth day yet. It's still the seventh day. Oh, okay. Because I was like, if somebody says, like, well, what if it was nine days? And I'm like, I yeah. don't know how it's <laughs> <laughs> And that's where comparing those three verses together, you get seven. Okay. Yeah, okay, got it. Isaac. So does about mean under a number? No, it's after. If you say about is like after. Low. If you say after four days, it's the fifth day. You're not saying after five, after four days, all onward. Right, but it's the word about is what he's questioning. So, so it has to be the day after six. So, like, are we there yet? Here, let me give you a great example. So, with my kids, are we there yet? Just about. But you can also say almost, which means. But the Bible doesn't say almost. It says about. Because every word of God is pure. <laughs> no, it's okay. But see, this is where you have to compare. And as you compare all three verses, it's the same account. So you have after six, after six, about eight. So if you're saying that that could be nine or ten or whatever, then there's a contradiction. Now the Bible's a liar. And now we're done. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, look at the time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we good? Yep. Okay. All right, okay. All right, now let's look at a hard one. And now, if you guys struggle with that one, this one's going to be, whoo, all right. All right, so um, 1 Kings 6.1 versus Acts 13, 16 through 22. So everyone go to Acts 13 and give me someone that will go to 1 Kings 6.1. All right, Emily, you can take 1 Kings 6.1. Everyone else go to Acts 13. Acts 13. Now, this is one, honestly, most people that are anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christianity, whatever, they're not going to know this one. So if you're in the room and you're anti those things, I'm going to actually give you an argument of why not to believe. But and I'm kidding. I'm just joking. <laughs> All right. Um, but this is one that, that people that are really studying out, trying, to, trying really hard to find an airtight contradiction, this is one that they would be able to find. Because at first, when I read this one, honestly, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to reconcile this one. And then I started working through it and studied it out and then found out more stuff. All right. So, 1 Kings 6, 1. Emily, go ahead and read that one. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth, yeah, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Okay, so it was 480 years. So it was 480 years coming out of the captivity and all that stuff that led up to that point where they were beginning to build the temple. And even on top of that, it also talks about the third year of his reign or the fourth year of his reign. So it completed the third year of his reign. And so now it's the beginning of the fourth year. Okay, now take a look at Acts 13. Acts 13, 16 through 22. Okay, so verse 16. Then Paul stood up. And beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. Now he's going to give some history. And it's going to line up with 1 Kings 6. The God of, of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of how many years? Alright, so we got 40. Okay. Okay, 40. 
All right. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges for about the space of 450. Okay. 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king, and God gave them, gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, or Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of? Forty. Okay? Forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And how many years did, did David reign over Israel? Anyone know? Five. Forty. Forty. Okay. And then Solomon. So according to 1 Kings chapter 6, it says there's 480 years. But according to the account that Paul gave, what are our years here? Too much math. <laughs> 570? A boot, 570. A boot. I'm in calculus. 570. Right? Is that, is that our math? Are we right on our math there? Okay. And then it says in 1 Kings 6 that it was after the third year, right? So really... It's 573, but we'll just say 570 now. We'll just keep the math simple, all right? So we're now into the third year of Solomon's reign. Okay, so 480 and 570, are they the same? Yes. Okay, <laughs> oh, yeah, all right, all right. You're clearly in calculus. <laughs> this isn't theoretical mathematics. <laughs> all right, no, they're not the same. So now when you're looking at these two, it's like, okay, so what's the deal? Because we have Acts 13 that now says there's 570 years from when the exodus of Egypt unto the end of David's reign now into Solomon. But yet in 1 Kings 6, it says 480 years. Anybody? It's a good thought, but no, they're both according to the lunar calendar. The Jewish calendar. <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Okay. All right, so let's subtract these two. What's our difference here? 90. 90, all right? So 90, so 90 years between them, okay? And then if we want to tack on Solomon's first three years, we got 93. All right, so we're missing 93 years. Where did this 93-year gap go? Where did it go? It didn't go anywhere. Where did it blip? <laughs> I say if anyone knew this one, I'd actually like give you money if I had any. Exodus? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Thank you. So you're gonna want to read the Bible really quick. Yeah. Okay. They're gonna need more than just a minute <laughs> for this one, frankly. I'm sorry. Hey, put wait, your phone away. Wait, what's He's not honest. He's not honest. Ninety-three years. We're missing ninety-three years in Israel's history. Where did it go? When you compare the account from First Kings six to Acts thirteen, we're missing ninety-three years. Where did it go? I don't know. From the land of Egypt. No. Because it's after they left the land of Egypt. So beginning in the wilderness. Yeah. Timmy. Is this when they're wandering in the wilderness? 
Um, you mean the missing years? Yeah. No, because they were in the wilderness for how long? 40. 40 years. So are we only missing 53? No, we're still missing 93 because even both accounts give the years that they were wandering in the wilderness. Yeah. This might be completely wrong. But this, it talks about Solomon's reign, and this ends at David's. Right, so we added on 40 years for David's reign, which gets us here. And if we tacked on another three, then we would be 573. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I just threw the three here. Okay, okay. Yeah. Wait, no, you're fine. Isaac. We got it. We found it in the Bible. The first year of time is measured initially by adding the ages of the patriarchs at the birth of No. <laughs> I will just stop you there. <laughs> okay, all right. You guys want to know? Okay, okay. Turn to the book of Judges. Judges. Uh, Turn to the book of Judges. Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. <laughs> That's how you have to do it from now on, by the way. You got to do Judges. <laughs> judges. Just start in Judges, chapter 1. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one, yeah, basically. So, yeah, we'll look at that. Yeah. Okay. So, take a look at Joshua, or Judges, sorry. Judges, chapter 3. Judges, chapter 3. Judges 3. And somebody read verse 8 for me. Yeah, Isaac, go ahead. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the, uh, into the hand of Chushan, okay, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served that guy eight years. Eight years, okay. Oh, come on. Let's trash that one. Yep. Sorry, Ricardo. Okay. Yeah. All right, so eight years. All right, so there's eight years. All right. Now, verse 14. Ben, read verse 14. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18. Okay. All right. And then uh, chapter 4 and verse 3. Someone read that one. I got you. I got you. You got, you got it? All right, Brandonian. You got to go on a line. All right, all right. So the next one is the empty chair. Are you waiting down the yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. In 20 years, he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. 20 years. Okay. And then chapter 6 and verse 1. Probably. Wait, was it 416? 416? No, it's 4-3. 4-3. You got it? Gavin, you got it? Okay, 6-1. Alright. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Seven years. Okay. And then, chapter 13, verse 1. Rachel. Verse 1. <laughs> and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. 40 years. All right. So, 8 plus 18 plus 20 is 46. Plus 7. 54. 53. 53 plus 40 is. 
a number. 93. There's our missing 93 years. Yes. Where was it at? Okay. So. Question mark? Question. Question mark, please. Show me where. Okay, I was about to talk and communicate in English, and then you did question. So <laughs> let me let me finish, and then we'll make it clear. Okay, so based on those years in the book of Judges. Okay, so what Paul did not mention in his account, where he listed 40, 450, 40, 40, 70, 570 altogether. What he did not mention in there are the years that the nation of Israel were under the captivity of their enemies during the book of Judges. So in this account, 1 Kings 6.1, God basically erased all the years of the consequences of their disobedience. Yeah, deleted. It's done. It's over. So God did not count that in the official record of the kings. But when Paul is giving the full record while he's witnessing to the Jews, the Jews would have known fully that this is the actual, if you were to be like down to the wire and be 100% accurate on the number of years that, that was from the exodus of Egypt all the way until uh, Solomon and building the temple would be 573 years. And so he knew that. He put it out there. That was the history. But as far as official, official history of the nation of Israel, God just erased those years of captivity, which I actually think is a really great devotional application. Yeah. That whenever we have consequences of our poor decisions, when we're in the hand of God and we belong to God, He erases those years. I think it's kind of cool. I think it's really, really cool. But God is faithful enough to give you the answer of, where did those 93 years go? Just go in the book of Judges, count up all the years there in captivity, and you get your missing 93 years. Isn't that pretty sweet? I like that one. I like that one a lot. I know, I know. I know. It'd probably been a, honey, you gotta look at this. Yeah, whatever, Ralph. <laughs> I picture it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, we have about 10 minutes left. We can do one of two things. I would like to, maybe we all together can do a couple more. You wanna do that real quick? And then we can go to prayer meeting? Okay. Option two is not gonna happen, so it doesn't matter. Okay. Irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. Irrelevant. <laughs> Irrelevant. Okay. All right, we'll do we'll do two. All right, so give me um give me some volunteers. I need someone to go to Isaiah forty five seven. All right, Emily got that one. Sam, you can do Deuteronomy thirty two four. And then over here I need two volunteers. Because you guys were reading a bunch, so we're gonna get two volunteers to read over here. All right, all right, you two. Okay, you can do First Kings eight forty six and do Genesis six verse nine. Which which ones are these? Okay, so the first we're gonna do is Isaiah forty five verse seven. It's on the back side of your study sheet. Isaiah forty five seven and Deuteronomy thirty two four. And the second one we're gonna do is First Kings eight forty six versus Genesis six verse nine. All right, okay. All right, now listen carefully. Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Okay, anyone pick anything up out of that one? Sounds like a riddle. <laughs> all right, read it again. Listen. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. The Lord. The Lord. Yes. It says that he formed the darkness and he created evil. Now, a lot of people will pick that verse out and they'll say, see, God created evil. All right? You get that one? Now, read Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. 
He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Okay, so if God is a God without iniquity, and he is just and right in all of his ways, how is it then that the Bible says, from God's own mouth, that he created evil? Was he, like, referring to Satan when he said he created evil? Not really, it's just in general, the way it's worded, yeah. Isn't it like... You can't see that something's evil unless he, he created the good. So, like, the light, he created light, so darkness is just, like, a counterpart. Kind of. I mean... Like a shadow. But you can't say that God didn't see that, right? Like, he knew it was going to be that way because he knows everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so kind of... You want to add something, Ethan? No, he said it He stole it. Gosh, Carson. Sean Carson. Emily? Is it like when we're creating this, he gave us the choice? So it was almost like he created, like, he knew that we were going to choose evil, so he kind of, in a way, was kind of saying, like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I'm trying to make that word, but I'm not sure if it's... See, yeah, but this is good. See, this is why we need to look at this stuff. Yeah, good. Connor. Evil, they give us free will. They get to choose whether we choose light or darkness. Okay, okay. I would say yes, yeah, but but the way God words it there is interesting. And it's it's really the key is found in the way that he words it. So Emily, can you read it again? All right, listen carefully again. I form the light and create darkness. All right, stop there for a second. I form the light and create darkness. So kind of what Carson was talking about a little bit, when God, because in the beginning, this is all referenced back to the six days of creation. First of all, and this could get into a whole different slew of things, which I'm going to try to be careful. But anyway, but we've already talked about these things anyway, so whatever. All right. So, so in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then something happened. And now the earth is without form and void and darkness is upon the face of the deep. Now that darkness did not come from God. And we've studied that out completely, right? Who is it from? Lucifer. It's from Lucifer. And from his kingdom and judgment upon his kingdom. Absolutely. Because 1 John 1.9 talks about that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay. So when God said, let there be light, it was in the midst of darkness. And so when God formed the light... He then created darkness, and he separated the two. So, But he had to form the light. If he never formed the light and said, let there be light, then it would just be full of darkness, and there would be no light. And then God would be unjust, and then this whole thing would just fall apart. So he had to form the light. So I formed the light and created darkness. Got it? So does that make sense? Okay, now listen to the next part. I make peace and create evil. I make peace and create evil. Now, this one's very easy to understand if you just really think logically about it. When something happens, there is some sort of a conflict or some sort of an issue. When you step in and make peace, it draws division in whatever it is. So if you're going to declare righteousness and peace, there are some people that are going to be on the outs because they're not going to agree with you. And therefore, the only other result is evil. For God to draw a line, that means a judgment has to be made, and now that is evil. So God created the concept of evil by making peace. Got it? So it is very simple. But people that are scoffers, that hate God, hate the Bible, say, see, God created evil. How could he create evil if he's this just loving God? And they pull that verse out of context and not really think about it. Make sense? Okay. All right, let's do one more. 1 Kings 8.46 versus Genesis 6 verse 9. All right, 1 Kings 8.46. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, 
so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy far or near. Okay, so the focus on that one is there is no man that sinneth not. All right? So there's no man that sinneth not. All right, and then Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Okay, so there isn't a man that does not sin, 1 Kings, but Noah was just and perfect in his generations. Yeah. Genesis was before the Levitical law was set. Right? Okay, mm-hmm. it was. And that what he was saying was based on the idea that if you compare to the Ten Commandments, everyone's unjust. Okay. If the Ten Commandments haven't been laid yet in Leviticus by Moses, there's no standard. Well, there was, but it was by conscience. Yeah. yeah, it was by conscience. So he still could have been unjust, but it says that he was perfect in his generations. So, all right, Ethan. Is it because when the sons of God were coming down and procreating that Noah's genes was the only pure one left? Yes, absolutely. Because he was perfect in his generations. <clears throat> yeah, the emphasis was upon the generations. Yes. Yes. So he was perfect in his generations. It does not mean, it did not say that Noah was sinless. It does not mean that Noah was without sin at all. But people will look at that and say, well, how is that possible? He's a man. He's a sinner just like anybody else. How can you say that he's perfect? And what is he perfect in? He's perfect in his generations. That is in reference to his DNA. And in Genesis 6, you have the sons of God, angels, that fell, that left their first estate, come unto the daughters of men to procreate, to create, to create these abominations, giants. And also, um, I believe, some of the mythology of where you have demigods come into play in, in Greek and, and Roman mythology comes from these sorts of things. Um, so you have all that. But Noah and his family, their DNA was not defiled by angel DNA. It was not defiled. He was perfect in his generations, which is why God flooded the earth, wiped them all out, and then started over with Noah and his family to procreate the earth again. Because if you don't have, if you don't have straight human DNA, then the Messiah can't come. I mean, if you really think about it, in the plan of the devil, if the devil can defile the human DNA and the human generational line through which the Messiah was going to come, then God could never become a man and could never die on the cross for the sins of the world and never justify anyone of anything. Yeah? Later in the chapter when it says, verse 12, for all flesh had corrupted his way, does that include animals? Yes, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And there is some... And it gets a little bit deeper on this one, but some of the coming under the daughters of men did involve animals and things like that too. So there's, yeah, there, there's a lot of things that we could open Pandora's box, but we just don't have time because we have literally have a minute left. But yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. Makes sense? So if you just look at the context and really think through it, there are reasons for these things. So I gave you a whole bunch of other ones. You can look these up on your own time. But there's a whole bunch of stuff you guys can take a look at on apparent contradictions. And they are pretty fun. They're, they are pretty fun. One of the ones that I really like, too, is the last one, Romans 4, 2, and 3, versus James 2, 21. And that talks about how, in one place, it says that Abraham was justified by works. But then another place, it says that he was not justified by works. He was justified by faith. So which is it? It's a great one. So those are really, really good ones. So you can take a look at some of those later. And uh, I guess if there's someone that you know can find all the answers to whom, I'll just give you a sticker or something. 
<laughs> I'll give you a sticker. All right. Let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we're going to head down to the sanctuary to pray. And once we get there, you guys can sit in your prayer groups. If you don't have a prayer group, just join a group, and then we can share some prayer requests with each other um, once they open things up for people to start praying together. All right? So let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for just bringing us together, for us to open up your word to talk about these things. I pray stuff like this would strengthen our walk, that it would strengthen our faith, um, that we would be more confident in your book, uh, that it is free from error and it is pure and, and that we can trust every single word. So be with us now as we close things out here and we pray together. Um, I pray that you just give us more of a burden for the people around us, a burden for each other, um, burden for just even people at school, our family members that are just not living right, uh, just whatever it is, God. I pray that we'd be able to lay it at your feet. And that you give us your perspective. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.